1: I'm Maura Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Have you ever daydreamed about giving it all up, quitting your job, hitting the road, going wherever you feel like going? Did that fantasy arise during a really bad patch at work, Or because the current work and life situation you're in just isn't all that great for your mental health? It can feel extreme, of course, and not everyone's able to do it. Most of us aren't, financially or otherwise. But today's guest did. He spoke to me from Alaska, where he had traveled on his motorcycle, from Baja, Mexico, all the way up the coast, to as close to the Arctic Ocean as he could get. And this wasn't his first rodeo, or rather, motorcycle ride. Daryl Henrich is a mental health advocate and coach. He's been on the road for the better part of a year since he formally left his job in September. That job was as a high-powered vice president of a technical organization at Google. We'll talk about how Daryl battled years of depression and maybe repression of big feelings. How sharing his depression helped and sometimes hurt him at work, including why he didn't even travel to meetings he had set up for his own team for several years. But first, I started by asking Daryl why he was drawn to wandering at this point in his life.
2: I mean, there's probably a long psychological study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I was at Google for 17 years. And, you know, every single day was the biggest job I ever had. And it was extremely rewarding, but it was extremely demanding. And this type of thing was something that always always appealed to me. I love seeing and experiencing the world and, and animals and nature and people and things like that. But um no, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think it, literally my therapist and I have talked about this, <laughs> about <laughs> going from an extremely sort of like you know, regimented, clear life to something that is certainly a lot more unmoored. I mean, I've always kind of been like a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a binary person. I'm kind of all in on things that I, I'm either all in or all out. So yeah, I mean, I was all in on that Google career for a long time. And now I think I'm at the moment, I am all in on, uh, go take the world in, in the way that's kind of my, my way of taking it in, I guess.
1: You've written about your center of gravity changing after you left. Yeah. And I'm curious, Like, was there a period of detachment from this profound experience that had been your life for almost 20 years? Yeah,
2: I mean, I can't speak to other tech companies, but Google for certain, and obviously it was my experience. I think that the places where you are brought into somewhere that is... Mm Well-known as being the place that is kind of the goal for your industry, the goal for your craft, and the place that the highest achievers, the most talented, etc., are told that if you get there, you've kind of won. Mm -hmm. And then doing well Mm -hmm. in that space and being reinforced in that way. And I'm not judging this either because I, I think this just sort of happened. I don't think it was a technique. I think very, very talented people... Went to Google and thrived at Google. But yeah, it becomes all-consuming when the place that is the the height of one's craft is the place that one spends all of one's time, and it does become absolutely your center of gravity. And so, yeah, I think that the detaching and deprogramming, if you will, from that kind of life, I mean, you know, literally your friend group, your travel schedule, your safety and security, all of these things all are wrapped up in that. And each one of those, I mean, I was just talking to someone earlier about this, how humans, I think we like to be pattern matchers. Mm-hmm. We like to to summarize, right? Because summarizing makes it easier for us to get through the world. And it's like, if... You know, this coffee that I have, it's like a slightly brown beverage and it's going to probably taste like something within a 20% tolerance rate. (laughs) And but I think sometimes a pattern matcher can go haywire or the pattern matcher can oversummarize. And I think for a lot of people, it was what does Google equal? Google equals safety, security, income, friends, relationships, fitness, location,
0: food, food,
2: Yes. Uh, <laughs> what, what what am I missing? Uh, I'm sure there's more in there. Yeah. But if, if your future, yeah, your title, right? How you identify yourself in the world and to others, your public perception. So, Google equals that set of things. Well, holy crap! Like that's a tough thing to divorce from. That's a tough thing to even think about divorcing from, and. You know, through a lot of very sophisticated coaching and therapy, realizing that each of those things was not only unique to Google and each of those things had many different sources and... You know, like, is my identity only that? Are my family, or not my family, are my... Well, yeah, really, a lot of people there I consider family. Like, Mm -hmm. are my family and friends tied up in Google? Is my fitness and food and all that, is that the only way to have those things? It absolutely took, that was months and months of, probably years, really, because the process of me kind of detaching from that started even pre-COVID. So, yeah, it's been a process.
1: Well, and you you said to me last time we talked a few months ago that you know, you had spent some time visiting friends from Google who had had long careers like you and had gotten laid off and absolutely felt like the rug had been pulled out from under them in such a profound way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the thing is, for me, I was really fortunate to have had the luxury of deciding to go through that process on my own. Right. Like I started the long journey of, hey, is this what I want to do for the next 10 years or the rest of my career or whatever? I started that process, like I said, a couple of years ago. And it was a really slow, agonizing process for a really long time. Mm. And so many people who are dear to me, and obviously thousands and thousands of people that I've never even met, have been going through an accelerated version of that process that they had no control over. You know, I was able to break those steps down one at a time of the like, okay, like, where are my friends, uh, gonna come from? And oh, guess what? It's all the same friends. And we just don't talk about work anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're not lost to me because I'm not <laughs> a Google anymore. Yeah. I got to go through that in a really deliberate way at my own pace. And my heart continues just to go out to everyone who is going through all of that and coupled with the like, Oh crap, where does my income exactly. come from? Right. Where does my insurance come from? Where does my visa come from? Oh my God. I, and I, you know, part of why I've been speaking about that and writing about it is just because I did have the privilege and luxury of doing that at a slow pace. And I was hopeful that some amount of my own experience could be useful to people who are going through it in an accelerated way.
1: Yeah. So Daryl. You and I have spoken, I've written about you, we've had a lot of conversations, but what I would like to focus on today, which I think would be most helpful for our listeners, is your journey as a leader, because Google was where you learned to be a leader. Google wanted you to be a leader. You were one of the first leaders, I think, who was open about his mental health challenges. So I want to focus on that piece of the story, but to set up for the audience, I want to do two things first. The first thing I want to do is just nuts and bolts. I want to hear, you know, a little bit about where you're from. What did you first do at Google? And then like literally, like, what was your progression and what did you leave as? And then the second thing is we'll talk a little bit about your sort of mental health history because that's important for the audience to know too. Sure.
2: So my, you know, accelerated, <laughs> accelerated story into tech, you know, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. On the last vestiges of my great grandfather's farm. And I had the fortune of, uh, you know, my dad bought us a computer in 1986, and that was the <laughs> beginning of my technical career. <laughs> and, you know, it was spend the days outside playing in the woods with my grandmother, who was an old school naturalist before we called them naturalists, I guess. Wow. And in the evenings, I would mess around on my computer. And so I really had a kind of a leg up in the tech world. And I I think this is a little bit relevant to the story. When I was young, there weren't a lot of people or a lot of kids my age that were accessible. Most of my relationships were just with adults. I was Mm. fortunate to have four grandparents who were very close by. I had a younger brother, five years younger. Yeah. And so I was a very early reader. And it was just, I I didn't relate really to to kids because all of my experiences were with adults.
1: Mm.
2: And I think, you know, that was really hard for me in school just because it just didn't make any sense when I was in primary school and things like that. And it's relevant to the story just because, you know, in second grade was actually my first brush with a mental health challenge. My mom to this day is like, oh, second grade. Uh, (laughs) Second grade was a horrible time where essentially I had what I thought was severe stomach pain all the time, which actually turned out to be extreme boredom that I couldn't explain like my mom couldn't get me to school. I was so sick every single day. I couldn't deal with being there and and being sort of mind numbed. You couldn't stomach and, it. Yeah, I literally, <laughs> I literally couldn't stomach it, but I couldn't explain it. <laughs> right. It does tie back in. Later on, when I started to have the mental health challenges, it showed up again, kind of as like severe hypochondria at first, mm-hmm. where my mm-hmm. body was sending me signals that I just didn't really understand. So fast forward I was into tech things all of my my childhood, and and I I went to college in Maryland. I actually dropped out of school during the tech boom in 2000, and I worked for a couple of startups. I applied for... I was living in Boston at the time, and I applied for a Google job on Craigslist. Everyone likes that story. (laughs) <laughs> I applied for Google on Craigslist in 2004. Oh God, and uh, yep, and I managed to get that job, and so I started off as a a junior manager, I think, with three reports in the New York City office, which was just getting started at the time. And I was there for you know, like I said earlier, 17 years, and every day was the biggest job of my life. At the peak, I had a thousand-person team. I was managing, you know, probably. Uh, half or more of Google's internal systems, internal IT. You could think about like the systems that Googlers would use every day, whether that was their computing technology or intranet or video
1: conferencing and things like that. That was wow. my whole world for most of my career there. Did you apply on Craigslist to Google before it IPO'd? No. But soon after, I, think- I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was about
2: I I I always I mean I'm traveling a lot right now by motorcycle and I always say if I had applied maybe a year later I'd probably be traveling by private jet. But uh
1: so your first job was managerial,
2: though, off Craigslist? Yeah. So I was a manager in my previous job for Google. I was basically managing a small IT team at the startup I was at before that. And so the job was system operations manager in New York, and it was just a really small team of systems administrators. And we we were responsible for the corporate storage and backups team at the time. And then it just kind of grew from there. And this is where everything kind of started for me mental health-wise or started struggling mental health-wise for real in my adult life was, you know, I started with three. I was a junior manager. I essentially was given the mandate-ish of, hey, like we want to grow this team pretty significantly, pretty quickly. And I think I grew the team from like three to, it was basically about three dozen, three to 36 Mm. in something like a year and a half. And part of where the mental health challenges started certainly was like, you know, These management jobs, especially at incredibly like fast growing companies, I always described it as like you're given that special fireman's wrench for the fire hydrant and you (laughs) just can keep turning it on (laughs) and no one's gonna stop you and you can keep turning it. And that's sort of what happened. And it was, you know, you're brought into this place that's the target for people like you, and you're given the wrench to take on as much as you are capable of. And I think for me, what was interesting was I didn't actually experience the imposter syndrome that a lot of people feel in these jobs, I felt like I belonged there and I felt like I was doing it really, really well. And I got promoted you know, six months after I started and it was just all the signals reinforced, hey, you're good at this. Mm-hmm. What I think I missed, I mean, I, I missed a lot of things, subtle cues around things that I was beginning to struggle with, but I also missed the cues around, hey, this job is actually getting harder and harder and harder at a pace that's sort of ridiculous for someone to catch up to and learn enough skills to do. I mean, going from three to 36 people in a year and a half as a junior manager is ridiculous.
1: Did you not have a college degree or an MBA no, or anything? No, I still
2: don't. <laughs> I don't even have an undergrad degree, no. Wow. Well, no, I went to school for two years. I was the first person in my family. Well, I would have been the first person in my family uh, to graduate from college had I. My brother gets that <laughs> one. But, uh, (laughs) but look, I mean, I, I I think the thing is that industry at the time I had really, really advanced hobbyist skills since the age of eight to 12, even I was online before people knew what online was when I was 12 years old. And I had amazing jobs during college, like computer science department jobs and stuff like that. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm very pro degrees and things like that. And I, I, you know, it's nothing against that. For me, it was a, it was a circumstance at the time where I just, yeah.
1: It was a different world. I mean, nobody knew what they were doing and dot-com and tech companies. I mean, I was running marketing when I was like 25 years old Yeah, because honestly, like at least I knew something about digital marketing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. It's like, they were like, she knows something. Let's put her in charge. And I of course, didn't know the first thing about how to be in charge. It was, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so, yeah. So I think that the hobbyist experience and all of that, and I had a lot of startup, ex- I mean, when I dropped out and had the startup experience and things like that, it was like yeah. that nobody was teaching that stuff. The stuff that I was working on, even at Google at the beginning, there's no college, university, whatever, in at the time that was teaching anything like what I was doing because systems, I was doing systems and the computer science programs did not teach systems.
1: And then when you left Google, how many people, like what your peak, how many people were you in charge of?
2: Well, at the peak, it was a thousand in the whole organization.
1: So let's talk about your mental health stuff. Like yeah. th- just talk us through you started noticing.
2: Yeah. I got the job in 2005 mm-hmm. and I go from 3 to 36 people in in a year and a half. I was learning how to manage managers as a crash course. Mm-hmm. My manager was fairly new to management as well. Not a lot of a, a support system. Mm-hmm. We're all just kind of figuring it out. I started experiencing little What I later would have learned would be warning signs, but just little things of, I started just to feel a little bit off, you know, things like whether it was heart palpitations or I started to have these little like spots in my vision every now and then, and, you know, my heart was always kind of beating fairly quickly. And sometimes I'd have little sleep disturbances and, Hmm. you know, and I also, what was a big sign was obsessive thinking, especially hypochondria style, obsessive thinking you know, I was always on, I was the high trajectory achiever. My brain really never had a chance to, to relax.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. Imagine this: higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit hubspot.com to get started today.
1: Where did you learn in your career that you would be rewarded for the super responsiveness? I think that it was
2: less about me being I think it was less about me being rewarded externally and more me proving to myself that I could do these things. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, sure, there were certain like whether it was business outcomes or promotions or things like that, but that was never really the goal. It was more... (laughs) I mean, my favorite story about this when I was a kid was like, you know, I was a shy kid we were doing like trick-or-treating in the town or whatever. And people would always come and you would like the goal in the town was like, guess who the people are based on how many people there are and what their costume, <laughs> like how tall they were and things like that. And I was so shy and I never wanted to help guess who the people were. And my mom would always ask like, before you guess, do we know you? And
0: mm-hmm. if they
2: said yes, then you try to guess. And if they say no, you just give them the candy and they move on. <laughs> and I remember these people came in and they said, I didn't want to guess any of the people that we knew. And these people came in and my mom said, well, do we know you? And they said, no. And I said, let's try to guess them. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And so it was just this, like, that's my earliest memory of like, I want to try to solve the impossible problem, you know? And so I think that was kind of it. It was, can I prove to myself? And I don't know where that honestly came. Again, that's probably another psychological study of Daryl. But yeah, it was, can I do the thing that I don't think I can do? Yeah. So at first it was just these little, you know, I, I thought, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would regularly see a doctor for physicals and things like that. And I would mention these things and they would say things like anxiety. And at that point, that wasn't really part of my vocabulary. And even despite the sort of childhood stuff and anxiety in my family and those things, it never really connected because it wasn't something that I identified with. But it started to become severe to the point where I I was obsessively thinking about my own physical condition and at work, the problems, these were rightfully difficult problems that I was having trouble solving, but I took it as I can't solve these problems because something is wrong with me. Physically. I thought I had a brain tumor.
1: (gasps) Mm -hmm, I really did. mm -hmm. I thought
2: I had a brain tumor or some kind of weird endocrine problem that my neurotransmitters weren't getting the juice they needed. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) So I, I literally sought out every every doctor in New York to try to, I got MRIs and, you know, whatever. I went to eye doctors, what's this weird spot of my vision? And like, you know, I'm just like, someone's going to diagnose me with a brain tumor. And of course, everybody just wants to diagnose me with what it actually was, which was an anxiety disorder, which I right. refused for a long time.
1: Why? Why? Isn't that better than a brain tumor? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, it's a really good question, actually. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. <laughs>
1: I'm not a doctor, but. (laughs) (laughs) I think
2: because it didn't feel like what I thought that would feel like. Hmm. I didn't feel, quote unquote, anxious. I didn't feel, quote unquote, depressed. I would read a description of anxiety. I would read a description of depression and I would not relate to it at all. I never felt nervous. I felt stupid or I don't feel nervous. I feel like I've got a spot in my eye. I -hmm. don't feel depressed because I thought that what depression was, was sadness. I don't feel depressed. I feel sluggish and confused, you Mm -hmm. know? And so at the time, I didn't relate to those descriptions at all. And I also felt like the descriptions that doctors would give of these things like, oh, your neurotransmitters just need a little help. That felt like the most nonsensical thing. Like, I would have wanted, I wanted the real, if you're going to give me that diagnosis, I want the scientific version and that's nonsense. So, yeah, I just didn't buy it until Mm -hmm. honestly, eventually, like, you know, my body shut me down twice. It shut me down once when I woke up in the middle of the night with what I later learned was a a panic attack. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I thought I was going to die. And it didn't feel that's just, it just felt this sense of extreme doom. I just thought I was going to die. I called 911. I went to a really crappy hospital that just didn't do anything. They put me in the asthma room or something and I slept in the (sighs) asthma room all night. And the next morning they said, why are you here? I said, what? Shouldn't you know why I'm here? And they just sent me home. It was ridiculous. Oh my God. And the second time my body shut me down, I was supposed to fly out to California for a promotion committee and I was essentially paralyzed, not truly paralyzed, but almost to the point where I could not get myself out of bed. I just I couldn't do it. Both of those things happened probably within a maybe six-month period. And those were undeniable signs that something was wrong and that I needed more help. And that's when my sort of therapy journey began. But I mean, at this point, I was so far down this path of hypochondria and and severe anxiety, and I was later diagnosed with major depression. And,
1: and you suffered for a long time before you... I did. Were, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I suffered for... For quite a while before I sought help, and then I suffered for a long time during while I was seeking help. And it's interesting because I was actually listening to one of your previous guests from an episode in February who had mentioned he was, he worked for Gavin Newsom.
1: Oh, Lenny, Lenny Mendoza. Yeah.
2: He essentially had this acute episode and it was treated and he was able to begin integrating that episode and continue with his life. And I've heard that as in Europe, a lot of people that I've worked with who have experienced, whether it was burnout or acute episodes of depression or panic disorder, it's treated as a, a thing that you then treat and then you continue with life. For me, I was in this hell for so long. It wasn't an acute episode. It was a slog, a long downward slog where I lost my sense of normal. I lost mm-hmm. my baseline and I was lost wandering in the woods for years.
1: And you never took meds, right?
2: No. I. Um, and this was another thing where I've never taken, I, I think I took one pill one time and <laughs> it, it made me feel so bad. <laughs> this was later. This was after I was like, I'm at my wits end here. But um, it was strongly suggested that I take medication. And in retrospect, perhaps, I, again, I don't know, yeah. but I was in a Hey, Daryl's brain is like God's gift to the world. And I'm this high achiever, like very full of himself, whatever, that I couldn't mess with the secret formula that was, that had led to my success. And so I was really stubborn about that. And not only that, the way that medication was described to me was so idiotic at the time. Yeah, And I know a heck of a lot more about it now. And I believe in it a heck of a lot more now, but yeah, no. So I I didn't do that and going down the therapy route. And again, like I'm very, very pro therapy, still do it now, but I was so far gone that getting eventually to what was my bottom and then climbing back out of it, it was a years long process. It even led later on to, I developed a really severe flying anxiety. I didn't fly for three or four years in the height of my career. Yeah. And this was after like the acute part of my depression, I developed a paralyzing fear of airplanes in like 2009-ish. And from 2009 to like maybe 13, 14-ish, I did not get on an airplane. And what's really interesting, (laughs) I was just thinking about this this morning, actually, but this was like the high accelerating part of my career when I needed to be in California a lot and I'm still, I was living Mm -hmm. in New York and I was supposed to be, you know, all these global meetings and things. And I developed a re- reputation as the, the leader who would set up meetings and wouldn't attend his own meeting. And <gasps> at first, there was a shame about my mental health stuff that I worked through eventually. And we'll we'll talk about that. But the shame and stigma around that phobia was worse than the mental health.
1: Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. First of all, you must have been really good at your job because I, I cannot... This is before the pandemic. This is before Zoom. This is like, oh, yeah. you better get your ass on a plane. Yeah. What would people do when you were just... Would you just be like, no, I'm not coming? I don't
2: think there was a period in my life where I beat myself up more and berated myself and hated myself more than when I couldn't get over that. Like, the mental health, the depression those sorts of things i was lost in the woods and it was it was hard to get out of the flying phobia was it felt like a an unbelievable personal failure <laughs> and i later learned more about phobia and what causes them and it really was kind of a follow on of the other mental health struggles that i was having yeah and it was just kind of like you know essentially it's your brain assigns a cause to something that it can't find a cause for. And for me, the cause of these things I was experiencing at the time were like, oh, it must be airplanes. And I was lying to people about what it was. And it was always like I had some excuse, but eventually, you know, a few years of this, and clearly I'm never getting on an airplane.
1: Wasn't it John Madden? I think it was John Madden, right? It
2: was John Madden. He always took the bus. He always took the bus. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't <laughs> directly related, but there was in 2009, I drove to California towing an Airstream and I lived out there for quite a while. Oh, my
1: God. Yeah. People must have known this was anxiety. Like I think like, it was
2: so strange to people because I had flown before and flying was so normal for people that it almost wasn't a possibility for people. Like it almost right. wasn't a it didn't occur to people. That could even be a reason. Phobias, adult phobias are something else.
1: That's wild. Yeah. Okay. But you did get better and you continued to grow. And at some point, you started talking about it. Yeah. And the thing that you said to me, you said that for you, once you went public, although now that I know that you were the executive who wouldn't fly for years, I have a little bit more color, but like when you went public about it and you talked about it, you didn't get punished. Yeah. It became a thing that was a piece of your great narrative, yeah. and it didn't hurt your career at all. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, like how you made the decision to make this a piece of your leadership story, because every executive yeah. has a thing. They have a story, right? It's part of what gets us noticed and promoted. Yeah. And then how you brought it widely around the company. Yeah.
2: I mean, so at the time I wasn't yet an executive. I finished obviously my, my Google career there as an executive. I was a VP when I left, but at the beginning I started as a junior manager and I was kind of on my way up through. That was the one thing that was a little bit confounding to me and others about how was I also still so high achieving in the middle of what was hard to diagnose that I was in a major depressive crisis because I was also still so high functioning. It just didn't make a lot of sense even to doctors, but I don't think I was quote unquote well, I don't think we ever fully get quote unquote over these things, but yeah. I was, you know, I was through the the sort of acute severe depressive state and I was starting, I was on the path to a recovery. I was on the path to, I think, recover, well, I can tell a story another time about how I recovered from the, the flying phobia, but <laughs> I will just quickly tell you the, yeah. the way I, I overcame the flying phobia this was a deep part of my personality for so long. There is no way I can get on a plane. I couldn't get into an airport, nothing. I was going to take a class about for people to overcome flying anxiety. And the person that taught the class had written a book. It was called Flying with Confidence. I don't remember. It was co-written by a pilot and a psychiatrist. And I was like, I'm going to read the book before I go and sign up for this expensive class. And I read the book and I was like, this book is... Like, I know all this already. I, it's about flying dynamics. It's about anxiety. I literally know everything in this book already. Like, I roll. I guess I'm not signing up for the class. Wow. I really, I really expected more. I wake up the next morning. I'm not kidding you. This is, the story is not an exaggeration. I wake up the next morning after I read the book and my four year phobia was gone. Shut up. And I, I'm laying <laughs> in bed. I downloaded the JetBlue app on my phone. I booked a flight from jfk to logan i went to the airport i walk into the airport and i'm in tears because it's gone i know it's gone i get on the plane i fly to logan i'm literally crying the entire flight of joy i buy a newspaper to prove to somebody else that i was there (laughs) i get on the same plane and fly back to new york and i've never had another trouble again (laughs) that must be a good book Flying with confidence. I'm not, I'm not a paid, I'm not a paid advertiser. Okay. So as I'm sort of emerging from my darkest era, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of little things along the way, but the thing that sticks out in my mind was there was someone who came to me who had said that his doctor had recommended that he take some time off because of his mental health situation. And he came to me very sheepish and embarrassed and scared of what my response might be Hmm. i think he was one of my direct reports at the time he was ashamed and i guess was maybe expecting the worst he said um, he might need to start seeing a therapist and i was like oh are you asking for a recommendation (laughs) (laughs) like to me it was just so it'd been such a normal part of my life but i wasn't really out about it at work and he was like what i'm like do you want my therapist's name and i was like yeah i've been seeing therapists for like however many years so this this is my kind of earliest memory of this confluence of, wait a minute, I'm living this experience that has now become normal to me, that is abnormal, I guess, or, or shameful still, obviously, to a lot of people. And yes, I was aware of the shame for myself because I had some amount of it. But it just all kind of tied together around that time for me of like, oh, wait a minute, this is going on. And, and the thing is, part of my journey was absolutely one of loneliness there was nobody to look up to that i could see anywhere in the industry in my management group in anywhere nearby you know my tech idols that i had always looked up to i'm like once i was diagnosed with major depressive disorder it was oh well i, I guess my career's over now because obviously <laughs> nobody gets anywhere once they've got this mark on them had nobody that could prove otherwise that was up there at the heights of leadership or whatever right that could say like you can get here with that and so when I had that conversation with him and a couple of other conversations at the time it planted a little seed of there's something in there and it wasn't there's something in there of like this is going to be some you know whatever career pursuit for me it was a thing in there of I was alone I was in pain Nobody had any freaking idea what this was like, or at least it felt that way. And as I later began to learn, I'm surrounded by people also living these private hells, and nobody talks to each other about it. Nope. And the little bits of like people coming out of the woodwork and myself, like me coming out of the woodwork, starting to tell these stories and other people starting to share a little bit, I started to realize like there's this loneliness epidemic around these conditions and it started to become this little you know seed in my mind especially as a leader when i started to normalize it in conversations i was having with people but privately and i could see the difference that it made in them and the relief for them and the no not a big deal if you need to take a mental health leave certainly not a big deal if you're in therapy <laughs> and having these discussions around the taxes that we pay in these high stress jobs the taxes that vary high achieving thinker, you know, knowledge worker folks pay in their very, very busy brains psychologically. It started to become clear that there was something missing. And, you know, this wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make this the whole center of my whole career. It was just more, I'm not going to be shy about this. What year is this just to orient people? That first conversation, I want to say, was probably like 2009. So that would have been, you know, four years after my diagnosis, maybe five, four, three and a half, four years. Now.
1: And you hadn't been at Google that long either at that
2: point. It's funny because like back then, time was accelerated. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I feel like the, I used to think back like the, my first two years at Google, I felt
1: like it was about seven years long. No, I get that. But you were asked to be a leadership. I, I don't know how it works internally, but there's like an internal leadership Program and you gave a lot of talks.
2: That was all sort of self directed, honestly. So, most of yeah. it, I started teaching leadership classes just on my own because I was starting to have many of the same conversations. I had a pretty big org at that point. I probably was managing, I don't know, 200 people or something. And I was often mentoring junior managers, and I realized I was having a lot of the same conversations with people over and over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I was like, you know what? Rather than having all these as one on ones, I'm going to start bringing cohorts together and start teaching. Leadership classes. And yeah, I created a curriculum and Google made it very easy for people to create little classes like internally on their own. And sometimes they would, you know, your little classes could graduate to bigger classes and become more, you know, officially sanctioned and stuff like that. But, um, you know, and I started doing it just as like little leadership tidbits. But ultimately, every talk that I gave, every class that I taught on any topics like this, I started putting two lessons at the front every time. And one lesson was take care of yourself first. And it was kind of the, you know, put on your own mask before, put on your own oxygen mask. I'll say it that way. <laughs> put on your own oxygen mask before the person next to you.
1: And also, just let me orient that saying in time, because now that's like a little bit of a cliche. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah self-care, <laughs> whatever. But, uh. but back then, it wasn't like that. Oh, no, no,
2: no one talked about this stuff back then. No, yeah. no, it's it's true because right. So we're in 2009, 10, 11, 12, like in that, that kind of era, this was not, you're right right now in this year, it, it, you're, you're going to find corporate wellness talks and professionals. You're going to find mental health talks and you're going to like, this stuff is out there at the time. This was not out there. No, Having the thing of take care of yourself first was a big idea. And the second slide I put in almost everything was a. I had a little Carl Sagan pale blue dot slide of uh, everybody's just a human being trying to get by and (laughs) be a good human. That was slide two, pretty much every talk I gave. And so that's kind of how it how it started.
1: Do you think your experience with such a severe experience at a young age made you a better human leader?
2: I'm not sure if it has been evident from the rest of this conversation, I was an egocentric jerk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you were also a guy in his late 20s. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I was so full
2: of myself. and so full of, you know, I mean, guy in his late 20s, but like times five or times 500. I don't know. I, I was, I really, truly thought my brain was the best thing ever to happen to humanity. And I felt like doing this hard job in a way that, oh, look how amazing at it I am. What a freaking mess. And like <laughs> I did not treat people very well. People used to gather around for calls that I would do on speakerphone in the office to listen to me like eviscerate people <gasps> who the oh it's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Like we had vendors that weren't performing and I would get on the call and basically tell them how much they stank and people would love it. And like, oh my God, Daryl's doing his thing again. And it was just get it done. My standards were unbelievably high for myself and other people. And, you know, we got stuff done (laughs) and I got stuff done and there was a certain kind of person who liked to work with people like me. I know. Thank God. Like, you know, you know, people ask me, like, do you regret not taking medication and all these different things? Thank God I ate that humble pie. Mm. Thank God I had that experience. Thank God I got knocked down. Thank God, like, all that happened because I was on I was not on a good path. So what did it do? Yeah. It made me a compassionate person it made me slow down it made me realize that destroying other people wasn't a good way forward like hey how about we bring everybody along you know I was traveling with someone recently who wrote some Instagram post about how he said he was glad to have met me because I was a good human and I'm like you know I'm not going to self assign that (laughs) but I'm like I was not a good human (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that experience of many years of hell and of Humble Pie and of compassion and of, you know, learning what it was like to struggle and seeing other people's struggles and Mm -hmm. whatever, it completely transformed me. It transformed the way that I ran organizations. And I think sort of to your point before, I made humanity And human values, a pillar of everything that I did going forward. And I was also as the person who was really in charge of like the Googler experience. That was something that was extremely important to me, personal to me. And I also knew that it worked in terms of like, you know, whether that was products, whether that was organizational leadership style, whether it was whatever, like we are in a world that is extremely technical, extremely logical, extremely, you know, whatever tech centered. And again, we're going back here to say 2013, 14, 15, when a lot of this stuff was emerging. But I'm like, we're in a technical, logical, engineering centric world and building human values and these, you know, these words like compassion and empathy and caring and well-being into these technical systems. Like, we gotta do this. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I feel very I feel very proud of the work that I did in those ways. And I feel very proud of the organization that I ran for a very long time.
1: That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.